This is Criminal Behaviorology. I am your host, Timothy Joseph, and we are now broadcasting on Anchor.fm as well as Podomatic. You can listen to us on either site or anywhere that your podcatcher is able to grab this podcast from Criminal Behaviorology, the combined forces of behavior analysis and criminology, forensic psychology, those various areas. We're covering many topics and we're going to cover many topics in the future. Today uh, is quite a pleasure. I've got an uh, interview that I'm going to play with you with uh, Emily Mandel and it's about an article on hostage negotiation. This started out in 2009, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, a pilot study of naturally occurring high probability request sequences in hostage negotiations by James Hughes of York Central Hospital. In the current study, the audio tapes from three hostage-taking situations were analyzed. Hostage negotiator requests to the hostage taker were characterized as either high or low probability. The results suggested the hostage taker compliance to a hostage negotiator's low probability request was more likely when a series of complied with high probability requests preceded the low probability requests. Okay, so they're going to have a little bit of technical information. This has to do with the essentially the ideas of the idea of behavioral momentum and how you can encourage certain behaviors that would normally be difficult to get out of someone. That's a very, very simple way of putting it with a very, very serious issue. So I wanted to cover this particular article by Hughes, and then I come to find that Emily Mandel had covered this in the bside21.org site and had done a review of this very article in a very concise way. This was on December 7th, 2015. So, using the magic of the internet, I looked her up and proceeded to uh, ask her if she'd uh, be interviewed on the podcast, and she said yes. So I'm going to cut to that in just a second. If you catch this on Facebook... And you like what you heard. If you like us, then like us on Facebook. As I said, we're also on uh, Anchor.fm and we're also on Potomatic.com. Let's go ahead and go to the interview with Emily. Okay, Emily, are you there? I am here. Okay, very good. Well, we're here with Emily Mandel. Did I say your last name right? Uh, yep, thank you. Okay. Uh, and she had done the article, written the article, based on originally the Hughes, uh, James Hughes article, A Pilot Study of Naturally Occurring High Probability Request Sequences in Hostage Negotiations. That was in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis in 2009. And I thought it an interesting article, and lo and behold, somebody had already reviewed it. And this was in the bside21.org, which is a really useful uh, 
uh, magazine, online magazine set of articles and covering the same thing, the use of high probability request sequences and hostage negotiations. So we're going to talk about a little bit about that this evening. How are you doing this evening, Emily? I'm doing great. How are you? Not bad, not bad at all. I, this is uh, the first time I think a hostage negotiation has been covered here on criminal behaviorology and uh, perhaps some other areas of interest. For your own, uh, in your own educational and professional work, just how did you get involved in something like this and, and uh, just kind of tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, so I've always been interested in the field of human behavior. I studied psychology uh, for my undergraduate degree, and I was really fascinated by the topics explored, which included things like criminal behavior and mental illness and intellectual disability, and I really enjoyed learning about it, and I loved the qualitative analysis offered by the field of psychology, and it's a very important type of analysis, but I was really sort of hungering for the quantitative analysis piece of, of these behaviors and these cognitions, and so I didn't really know where to go from there because I loved what was being discussed and what was being studied, but I was wondering if there was another path to study these things, and I fell into the field of behavior analysis kind of serendipitously after my undergraduate degree, and then that really afforded me the opportunity to investigate these areas in a way that was more, I wouldn't say analytical, because qualitative analysis is incredibly important as well, but more analytical and methodical and employing of quantitative analysis. So that's kind of how I got into the field of behavior analysis. I currently work with individuals with autism and other intellectual disabilities, but I'm also very interested in the application of behavior analytic methodology outside of the realm of intellectual disability as well. Uh, what would you say are some similarities between quantitative analysis and behavioral analysis? I think that, so I'm of the, <laughs> I'm of the school of thought that we can, even if we haven't discovered it yet, we can find a way to measure everything in some capacity. And I do believe that there are variations on qualitative analysis, such as different types of cognitions or emotions, things that are more open-ended and subjective, that there are ways we can analyze these more objectively. We, there, and there's the field of radical behaviorism, which I went to a school that we really studied methodological behaviorism, so I'm going to get a lot of uh, flack for that, but that explores emotional states through a behavioral lens by measuring things like heart rate, respiratory rate, perspiration rate, things like that, and correlating them with various emotional states and seeing if we can produce behavioral change at that level, at the respondent level. So taking these sort of open-ended and kind of broad, scary concepts of emotional states, for example, and 
finding a way to make them more bite-sized and more measurable. Mm-hmm. So there is a way that we can take those qualitative aspects of behavior and cognition and potentially make them more quantitative. Yes, it says at the uh, at the end of the article about you, this is that you enjoy examining topics such as religion, medicine, politics, and social constructs through a behavioral lens. Everything we do can really be observed through a behavioral lens. So when you look at topics like religion, where you're looking at individual as well as group contingencies um, and how they shape behavior and how they shape adherence to different scriptures, adherence to different cultural practices. When you look at it in medicine, the field of behavioral medicine, mm-hmm. you have these, they're coming up all over the place now, which is fantastic, these departments and hospitals that focus exclusively on behavioral medicine and improving health, health outcomes using um, behavior analysis. So, for example, decreasing decreasing obesity and improving and increasing adherence to medical regimen. So that's that all falls under the scope of behavior analysis. You know, as a as a quick aside, a quick digression, uh, if I digress on this a little bit, you know, it's common practice to have psychological testing uh, in the cases when they're going to do surgery for obesity. Mm-hmm. They'll have a they'll have personality testing, and, and then the purpose is to to see how they may respond behaviorally if they have the uh, if they have the type of surgery, the bariatric surgery, where they reduce the ability to have food in the in the stomach contents through surgery. And uh, when I heard about that, I thought that this may be a, an in for behavior analysis because uh, if they are concerned about how someone will function, they're, they're kind of looking at it like, well, they're going to they're gonna do the personality testing, but a behavior analyst would look at this and say, what's the contingencies that we can put in place so that they'll follow their, their, their meal plan and the other things that they're supposed to do post a... Uh, post the uh, surgery to uh, reduce obesity. But it's just that how much behavior, there's so much missing that behavior analysis could apply to uh, everyday serious problems. Yeah, and we are slowly making headway into those areas. The more I go to these conferences and symposiums and different behavior analytic, I guess, areas of convention, more I'm seeing people branching outside of what we typically do, which, of course, is equally important. We want to ensure that what we're doing in the field of education and intellectual disability, we we keep that going and we continue to improve upon our advancements in those areas. But I'm seeing more and more presentations on how do we... There was one at Coaba that I went to on Saturday how do we increase physical activity in children to minimize the chances that they're going to become overweight, which Mm -hmm. will translate into becoming overweight adults, which translates very often into heart disease and hypertensive disorders and the like. So there has been a little bit of a shift in expanding out of our comfort zone and 
exploring these new and very important areas. And, and did you say that organization was COABA? Yeah, the Colorado Association for Behavior Analysis. Colorado Association for Behavior Analysis. Very good. Mm-hmm. So tell uh, tell me what attracted you to uh, the Hughes article, The Use of High Probability Request Sequences in Hostage Negotiation. I had actually um, read that paper in a, in grad school. It was one of our assignments in one of the courses we took. And just coincidentally, I had been uh, using a lot of high-probability request sequences, a lot of behavioral momentum, with one of the kids I was working with who we were having a lot of issues gaining compliance with various requests, various instructions. So it fit real nicely, and I sort of branched out from there where I read the article, and then I proceeded to read into um, other articles on criminal behavior and hostage negotiation and different things like that. To and, and what was really cool about it is it gave me the opportunity to see that principle that I was using with you know, a five-year-old kid the same principle, obviously, implemented very differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could be used successfully with an adult in an incredibly tense situation. Mm-hmm. So that really piqued my interest. Okay, and I'll some select readings from from your article: a pilot study conducted by James Hughes in 2009 investigated the use of behavior analytic methodology in hostage negotiation. In the Hughes study, audio tapes from three hostage negotiations were analyzed with specific focus on hostage negotiators' use of behavioral momentum or high-probability request sequences in gaining compliance from hostage takers. Behavioral momentum refers to the tendency for behavior to persist following a change in environmental conditions. The greater rate of reinforcement, the greater the behavioral momentum. Behavioral momentum consists of a presentation of a sequence of requests with which an individual is likely to comply, high probability requests, followed by the presentation of a request with which an individual is less likely to comply, a low probability request. The momentum with which the individual complies with a sequence of high probability requests increases the likelihood that he or she will comply with a subsequent low probability request. What can you tell us about that little segment right there? And, and maybe you can talk about uh, how that's applied in, in your work with uh, the disabled and with those with autism as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do acknowledge that I did, <laughs> I did use a lot of jargon uh, mm-hmm. within that description of what behavioral momentum is. But essentially what it is is you're presenting a sequence of requests with which somebody is likely to comply. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has no problem at all, clapping their hands, stomping their feet, smiling, you might want to utilize something like that prior to then um, presenting what we call low probability request, which is a request with which somebody is less likely to comply. So maybe something 
an individual doesn't do as often or something an individual doesn't typically like to do. So if you just present that one demand, so if they say, okay, release the hostages, in the hostage negotiation example, a person's not really very likely to comply with that request because if, if it were that easy, hostage negotiators would all be out of business. But they analyzed utilizing that high P, low P request sequence. So prior to asking them to do something big like um, releasing a hostage or um, releasing a great deal of information, they would ask them these, these questions that they, that they were more likely to answer or ask them requests with which they were more likely to comply. So when you're looking here, they did score them. So they scored each request on a scale, I believe, from uh, yep, category one to category four. And, um, and category one, oh, sorry? And, and Emily, these they had this information from actual audio recordings of the hostage negotiations, right? Yep. So these were actual hostage negotiation recordings that were analyzed. And it, it says in the article, the three hostage negotiations highlighted in the Hughes study were a 1972 robbery attempt in Brooklyn, a 1991 robbery attempt in Sacramento, and a 1981 invasion of FBI offices in Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, have you, uh, were you familiar with these three cases? I was not prior to uh, reading the article. Have you looked them up since then? No, I actually, I have, I have not. I will admit uh, that. I, I, we may post the links, but the the uh, invasion of the FBI office in Atlanta. I had not heard of that one. It was a, a mentally ill man apparently took some people hostage in an FBI office, which surprised them. The 1991 robbery attempt in Sacramento, I'm pretty sure that was a group of uh, uh, people that held up a, uh, it was it was like an electronic store, and they were from, I think they were from Thailand or Laos, but they had a very hard time communicating with them, but it was a, it was a very serious hostage situation. The 1972 robbery in Brooklyn, when I look that up, it looks like it was the case that inspired, if, if people have heard about this, it's been a long time, uh, the movie, the Al Pacino movie, Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, really? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it seemed very similar to it, but that's just an aside. But yeah, interesting that they, they chose those three cases. But yeah, they had actual audio recordings that they could analyze, and they put them into those four categories. And what and what else were you going to tell us about the uh, about the study, the Hughes study? So they broke the different requests into four different categories to analyze each type of request independently. So not simply high probability and low probability, but they did sort of a parametric analysis of the different types of um, uh, high probability requests. So the category rum requests were for non-personal information, clarification questions, and things like questions regarding situational information. The category Q requests were requests for personal information, 
and these involve thoughts, feelings, and personal identification. Category three consisted of requests to engage in various behaviors that did not include forfeiting the ne- any negotiating items. So they were asked to do things, but they weren't asked to forfeit people or forfeit any objects associated with uh, negotiation. And category four was the request to surrender hostages, weapons, and other negotiating items. So as you can see, it it increases in, uh, or rather decreases in the probability that somebody will comply with the request be further up in the number of categories you go. So, uh, So category four would certainly be considered a low low probability request and yep. category one would be considered certainly be considered one of the high probability requests yeah category one would probably be the highest probability request mm-hmm. so just answering the clarification question or offering up information that wasn't personal to the individual perpetrating the hostage situation okay so and and there is even in your article is uh, it's not uh, that long to read, but you have a lot of information, a lot of detailed information, which you just spoke of. In one section, it says hostage takers complied with only four of the seventy combined low probability requests in three hostage negotiation situations. The low probability request with which the hostage takers complied were all preceded by a sequence of three or more high probability requests, suggesting that the greater the number of high probability requests within the sequence, the likelier the individual was to comply with subsequent low probability requests. For low probability requests preceded by three or more high probability requests, Conditional probability was 0.8, compliance in four out of five opportunities. So what, from those results, what do you think that is telling us, Emily? I think it's telling us what the research uh, on, on high-P request sequences has been telling us, which is that the delivery of those um, high-P requests and the more of the high-P requests you deliver prior to delivering the, the more challenging directive, the likelier you are to um, gain compliance. And again, that was a really unconditional probability score. They found that in four out of the five opportunities in which three or more high-P request sequences preceded the low-P request sequence, there was compliance with that low-P directive. But it does tell us also this is not um, a perfect system. There was one out of the five instances in which there was non-compliance with the directive. But it does dramatically increase the chances that a person's going to comply with something that they were less likely to comply with prior to the presentation of those high-P demands. So uh, we could look at this uh, as, say, like something similar to working with uh, a client with autism or developmental disabilities, you could you could make to, in order to. Uh, I'll try and use layman's terms. 
to, to convey this, but in order to uh, get the person to comply with something, you may make a series of high probability requests and then make that low probability requests in the hopes that, that doing that procedure in that way would, would help them to uh, comply with uh, something they nor normally wouldn't comply with or it's hard to get them to, to do. Is that kind of... The yep, so that's typically what we do. So, for example, I'll do something along the lines of, I have a kid who, but who sitting and attending to a task has been a bit of a challenge, but I find that if I tell him to sit down and um, keep his hands on the table, after I've told him, okay, pick this up first, okay, give me a high five, okay, um, now put that over there, okay, now sit down. He's much, much more likely to comply with that directive than if I just said, okay, we're going to sit down and do work. So, you think this kind of technology, this, this information, could be useful for hostage negotiations? Could it could be implemented in some kind of specific way? Absolutely, and I would love to see, I mean, it's hard to replicate any sort of hostage negotiation. They're all very different, and you also want to defer to the experts who mm -hmm. have been doing this a long time rather than saying, hey, can we use this hostage situation to try something new? But I would love to see a replication in the form of, I would love to see other hostage tapes analyzed to see if the results were in line with what the Hughes study found. I think that would be very interesting, and to see if we found pattern there. That's exactly my thinking when I read uh, your article and, and James Hughes' article, that with the hostage negotiations now, uh, a lot of them, uh, large numbers of them, uh, have pretty clear audio tapes and maybe from around the world, and they can do this same kind of study on them and, and get a lot of good information out of it. It was exactly my kind of thi my thinking on the when I read both of these articles. And I'm glad you said what you said about we need to be careful as we enter this realm because we can defer to other experts like criminologists and forensic psychologists and, and, and those that have studied hostage negotiation. It would be very interesting, but... It's a, it's a responsible uh, course of action to say we're going to approach this carefully. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the limitations of the Hughes study, and how, can, uh, how do you think similar... You, know, you spoke about that, how similar research could improve on it, but what, what do you think are some of the limitations on it? One of the first ones that they brought up in the discussion of the study was they were only able to score the audio tape that they could hear, and some of the audio tape quality was, I'd say, pretty poor. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like they, they emphasized, so they couldn't score those clips. And the second is that in the, the transcription of the audio tape um, didn't take into account the elapsed time between verbal exchanges. So they didn't calculate how much time had passed between them telling the um, the hostage taker um, what to do and mm -hmm. the actual instance of compliance and vice versa, the mm -hmm. response of the hostage taker and the action on part of the hostage negotiators. 
Um, and then we lifted a final limitation uh, that only, and, and again, it's what we discussed, that only three hostage negotiations were analyzed. And there was a combined compliance with only four of the low-key requests. <laughs> and of these three negotiations, two of them ended violently before hostage negotiators could make more requests. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to what you were talking about. Uh, there needs to be further analysis into um, those recordings of uh, subsequent hostage negotiations, and especially ones with better audio tape quality to see if if we can replicate, not necessarily, I wouldn't say replicate the results because it's not terribly controlled, but to see if we notice a pattern that, oh, in the next 10 hostage negotiations we analyzed, we noticed the same effect of uh, the presentation of high P request sequences prior to presenting a low P request. So, so get uh, better quality uh, audio tapes. Determine uh, what were the elapsed time between verbal exchanges. Those two things would uh, would improve the study, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and then just uh, we'll see, you know uh, see if the findings can be replicated. See if more than just three hostage negotiations can be analyzed. Those are three things that could could be an improvement yeah definitely okay well uh why do you think behavior analysts should be interested in uh in things like crime delinquency and forensic psychology uh you don't have to convince me because we have a whole show on it here but uh, you can tell us your opinion on it because we have so much to offer Mm. that i feel like it's a real disservice to the world to keep this incredible science to ourselves and not expand outside of what we're typically comfortable with. Um, And there's been a a sizable amount of research done within these realms, not in my opinion, not nearly enough, but that have demonstrated that behavioral principles um, are applicable across not just all people, but organisms, any organism that is receptive to reinforcement, punishment, extinction, mm-hmm. and stimulus control. So any organism, I guess, that has those higher mental faculties, although they have done research on flatworms as well. Um, so yeah, even even uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, low uh, uh, one-celled organisms. They've done things to encourage you know, to uh, yeah. promote behavior. So yeah, yeah. So I take that back. Yeah. Across organisms. Yeah. We found that these that these principles are applicable to everybody, essentially. Mm-hmm. So why not utilize manipulations of reinforcement, punishment, um, different types of uh, behavioral methodology to improve outcomes for people in an incredibly wide variety of areas? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh- Agreement is 100% here on criminal behaviorology. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I do think there's tried to, there's, when I first started looking at it, there's just so many areas to cover. But you're absolutely right uh, to uh, not just keep the science to ourselves, but uh, apply it uh, to the rest of the world in ways that are useful. So, in uh, 
light of your interest in these topics, what can you tell us about uh, for yourself future research and, and some career goals that you have? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, a lot of my research is being done on shaping procedures to teach functional skills to to individuals with chromosomal deletion disorders that affect their nervous system. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. Um, down the road, my my real passion is behavioral medicine. So mm-hmm. improving health outcomes, um, utilizing behavioral methodology. So I know that we spoke about increasing rates of activity and treatment adherence and the like. My area that I would really love to research is respondent behavior and which is, uh, sorry, in layman's terms, physiological behavior. So Mm -hmm. in behavior analysis, we believe everything is behavior, even heart rate Mm -hmm. and sweating. It's all behavior. So Mm -hmm. using respondent conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning, to improve health outcomes and uh, addressing potentially even emotional states. I know, again, that's a lot of behavior analysts don't like when we talk about that, uh, but finding correlates with various emotional states. So what's an emotional state um, that we can analyze behaviorally, um, like maybe anxiety. So right. what does that look like? Increased heart rate, um, muscle tensing, increased, uh, increased respiration rate. So how do we implement strategies to improve emotional outcomes and analyzing the physiological response to those emotional states and the physiological response to ways we're aiming to reduce um, aversive uh, physiological and emotional states. So that's kind of where I want to go with it. Do you you think uh, behavior analysis could be used to uh, help with treatment for something like high blood pressure? Absolutely. Um, There was a really cool study done by... um, by Whitehead, I believe, in the 70s, that that investigated the use of respondent conditioning in decreasing systolic blood pressure. So basically, they paired, uh, apparently, if you tilt the head at a certain angle, it will produce decreases in blood pressure. So they paired the head tilt with an auditory stimulus, and they used those repeated presentations until the sound alone was what produced the decrease in blood pressure. Really? So, yeah, they've done real, and they've done um, an almost identical study um, in decreasing blood blood glucose levels, pairing a previously neutral stimulus with administering insulin and investigating whether that neutral stimulus alone would decrease blood glucose, and it did. Well, you have some of the uh, you, some of the broadest interests of a behavior analyst that I've spoken to. It's, it seemed like there's uh, nothing that you're you're not willing to apply this to, and I uh, I applaud you for that. Uh, this has been a very good interview. I I think I said we'd we'd be about uh, less than a half an hour, and now we're over a half an hour, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> Don't worry. You you really have uh, so much to offer, and uh, maybe if uh, we can talk you into it again, we could have you uh, on a future podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. 